Hi, this is Ashley, the host of Taboo and Murder, and Slanted Rants. I think to keep my head from exploding, I may need to start a weekly rant on the fucking patriarchy alone. If I spontaneously combust, at least it will be my dream death come true. Today is January 8th, 2019. I'm writing this during the day-to-day Tuesday. But I know that Fuckface in Chief is addressing the nation this evening, and I just have a feeling he'll say something that will shine a light on the fucking patriarchy. So I'm going to hold a little space for whatever dumb shit he comes up with, and I'll record and then drop the episode raw and unedited. No. You know what? Fuck that guy. I'm not going to hold space for him, and truthfully, I don't want to watch. And I'll hedge my bet that he'll stick with racism to appease his base. The sexist comments should be minimal. He's not campaigning or anything. Fuck. Maybe I'll just butterfly affect some shit by saying that. Anyway, sorry you heard me think aloud. Get to the script, lady. Okay. The amount of women in the 116th Congress means true progression in the dismantling of more and of one of the more significant patriarchal systems in America. This influx of women and women of color in particular will impact so many other patriarchal institutions. That is thrilling, promising, and inspiring. If you're someone like me that believes true representation in government and all institutions is fucking obviously needed, hooray. But of course, there's an equal and opposite reaction by those that don't feel the way that I do. Let's call these the status quoers. But it's a sea of white men. Don't take my word for it. Look it up. As a result, of the historical gains women made in 2018, the predictable yet rage-inducing sexism is blatant, raging and giving racism a run for its coke-funded money. Sexism in itself is a product of the patriarchy. It's no surprise that it's a go-to for the status quoers to just double down. Hey, it's fucking worked, right? Hillary Rodham Clinton She's not president. I know, I know. But her emails. The night that AOC was informed on live television that she would be the primary and presumed next representative coming from the liberal Bronx, she had a target on her back. Off the top of my head, I can recall they went after how she wasn't poor enough. She had it too good to claim her story. She was blasted for not being able to afford a second home in one of the most expensive cities in the country until her salary from her new job, that she had not started yet, would allow for her to afford said housing. They, being the media, vomiting the opinions of the Fox News pundits, covered everything she did. And more importantly than that, the media covered everything everyone else was saying about her. like. Who gives a fuck if she's poor and has managed to pull together a traditional-looking business suit? Do you want her to walk into Congress looking homeless? I can only imagine how that would go. Just like being a mom, being a female politician means there are a thousand ways to do everything wrong and zero ways to do it right. AOC is such a target that even those in her party are lining up for the feast. And why is she such a threat? Well, 
I think there have been many takes on why her imperfect speech, youth, progressive policies have all upset the status quoers. But there's something that people won't say. I'm not going to call out anyone in particular in this regard because it's fucking taboo. I'm not here with answers. I'm sharing my views as they evolve. That's human nature. What I strive for with this podcast is to be a conversation starter. Oh, and if you haven't listened to my first episode on the patriarchy, you may want to listen to that first or two. So using AOC as the target because everyone is making her one, so there's a shit ton of data. Obvious take to many women I know. The patriarchy hates a young, strong woman that is also a person of color. The patriarchal system is set up to reject that input. I think that's been said clearly, if not as bluntly. But what people aren't willing to say, and I will because my voice doesn't matter, a huge contributing factor to the attacks on AOC by the largely male white GOP, well, They're not used to this tenacity being embodied in a package that they'd very much like to fuck. Is this taboo to say? Maybe. Is it true? Maybe. Is it my opinion today? Yes. As a young, attractive woman with balls to match Mitch McConnell's jowls, the GOP isn't set up to hate a young woman that makes them horny. The Tommy Lawrence of the world are great. She provides the perfect political beat-off fodder. They don't need to mute her to come. So these old wrinkly ball sacks are confused. I hate this woman, but I want to fuck her. And they're all too old to know about hate fucking. So it's really confusing for these dudes to process when they can't even get the hang of their email. It's true, like 80% or some outrageous number of senior members of Congress don't know how to email. Their staffers have always and continue to do all of their shit for them. They have never learned. I bet they figure it out porn, though. Anyway, they call AOC little girl. They try to make some issue of a video of her dancing, how poor she is or she isn't, how she is or isn't deserving of her own story but they want to hate fuck her. And that terrifies the old crusties in the GOP. She's popular, likable, and shaking up the status quo. They hate that, but they find her attractive. Women aren't allowed to be both. This is suspicious. You know, that Madonna whore complex and shit. Hillary Clinton is brash, tenacious, self-assured, but of course her appearance is judged negatively. I don't want to rehash all the stuff from my first episode, so I'll assume you've listened to it for time's sake. Oh, and listen to Slow Burn if you haven't already. I think it's by Slate. It's an amazing podcast. Um, I was a single-digit kid when all the shit went down in real time, so I grew up, unfortunately, thinking Monica Lewinsky was bad. Why? I hadn't a clue, really. She was just some slut, or so I was led to believe based on what I had picked up from the news. I feel so ashamed that Monica Lewinsky and Hillary Rodham Clinton will wear the indiscretions of Bill Clinton as part of their respective legacies. And Bill Clinton, well, that dog will be remembered for being a charmer with a twinkle in his eye and a mischievous grin, probably because... um. He fucking raped someone and got away with it. Allegedly, Juanita Broderick. 
Okay, back to the notes. Yes, Hillary Clinton has been a public figure for so long. She comes with so much baggage baggage as referenced above. In the 2016 election, people literally commented about how gross it would be to watch her age in the White House. The, this blatant fucking sexism is a byproduct of HRC bucking the patriarchy. She's knowledgeable, credible, qualified, experienced, therefore she's ugly. AOC is young, so she's inexperienced, which yes is true, and should have obviously disqualified her because no one without qualification qualifications ever held an elected seat, right? Okay, so she's inexperienced by comparison, and uh, which is why she was voted in with the wave of dozens of other younger, newer candidates. She was outgoing and a shock to the system with her primary win. She then had a target on her back. Good old-fashioned sexism from men and women alike have tried to detract her from her goals. Those not looking to actively vilify her can flip and reverse these blatant attacks easily. She counters the dancing video with a new one as a motherfucking congresswoman. The thing is, the AOCs in the world are infiltrating all of these patriarchal systems, and we will reshape them. There are two reactions. Build the proverbial wall or silo, whatever you want to say, and hope that the percentage of white men and delusional white women will continue to believe that they're not in an abusive relationship with their government. Or the 35% of the Trump ass kissers will splinter when he dies, when he, when they see that he isn't rich, when he and his three eldest children are taken to jail, when government workers like the TSA can't thwart a terrorist attack because they're calling in sick, because they're not getting paid, because of the motherfucking government shutdown due to the political issue that is the wall. You know, because of the government shutdown, the it, it's all political symbol, you know, symbology. If it wasn't the pussy tape, if it wasn't the travel ban, if it wasn't the detention and deaths of children, can Donald Trump handle his base going without pay for months or even years? What about when people can't file taxes and can't get money they depend on? Oh, this was corrected since I wrote this today. That will be something that they allow to happen. People will be able to get their tax refunds. Will it be the Mueller report that wakes always Trump supporters up? Until then, the rest of the GOP is placating and pandering to a sexual predator. This ensures that any real significant progressions in society will be stifled. Are Republicans racist, xenophobic, sexist, rich people out of touch? Yeah. They're also working in a system that is as patriarchal as it can get. Look for photo documentation for the women's restroom line after the swearing-in. Until women like AOC are in power, the systems themselves won't change. The sexism toward her to discredit her will continue. The discreditations are to strip her of her power. She's not a little girl. She's one of the many new faces making up our true societal culture. That means that the patriarchal foundation these old men are standing on is cracking under their feet. And that must be terrifying, feeling that you're about to drown in cold water while simultaneously having a boner. So the blatant sexism isn't going away. It will continue. It's AOC right now. 
but it was HRC a decade ago. And it will be some other woman, like Elizabeth Warren or Camilla Harris, that will share the sexist attacks with AOC and Nancy Pelosi. Quick little personal note, I've been in a male-dominated industry for a decade and a half now, so I've had my fair share of sexism to overcome. Which leads a young 20-something to daydream some kind of crazy shit. I've had this recurring thought when I'm working with a particular type of man, like, what if I brought a dildo, a literal, like, prosthetic penis, to a meeting, made eye contact, didn't say a fucking word, and just set the dildo on the desk before talking? Like, what would happen? Would it be perceived as sexual harassment? Would the person storm out of the room? Would he ignore it? Would he have the audacity to ask? why I brought it. Of course, I haven't done this yet. Anyway. But when I let the scene play out, I always have some great monologue about how this phallic symbol is the only reason you're not treating me with the respect and understanding of my intellect. And then said man is won over by how foolish he has been and we sign the deal without further issues. So since the dildo isn't the answer to all the world's problems, what is the real answer? How do we combat sexism without allowing it to influence and distract from actual policy? AOC has taken so much shit about her plans, she hasn't even been given the opportunity to fail yet. For kicks, here are a few historical, historical facts. Yes, facts. If you disagree, see the show notes and then tweet about fake news. Deal? While her progressive thoughts on education, health care, and the Green New Deal, nothing made the fangs come out like a suggestion that the GOP politicians and supporters should pay a significantly higher federal tax than they're paying now, like 70%. This is where she'll be attacked mercilessly. But let's look at the historical context of taxation of the most wealthy of Americans for perspective. This is from Money Magazine, yesterday, January 7th, 2019. Should the richest Americans pay a 70% marginal tax rate? AOC, the 29-year-old New Yorker who recently became the youngest congresswoman in history, says it's worth considering. In a highly publicized interview with Anderson Cooper on 60 Minutes, Ocasio-Cortez, who is often known on the internet by her nickname AOC, embraced her characterization as a radical. She said that there's no question President Donald Trump is a racist and called for a wide range of ambitious progressive causes that might be paid for with significantly higher taxes on the rich. The so-called Green New Deal that um, Ocasio-Cortez, I just want to call her AOC, and other Democratic upstarts are backing include lofty and expensive goals like achieving universal health care and converting every facet of the U.S. economy to renewable, renewable resources of energy in 12 years. Maybe because the fucking climate um, forecast says that we have 10 years to get fucking shit under control or we're all going to die, Okay. Anyway, back to the quote from Money Magazine. Always have the link in the sh show notes. So renewable sources of energy in 12 years. And how might America pay for programs like these? One possibility that Ocasio-Cortez raised in 
is for the U.S. to have significantly higher taxes on the rich, including tax rates upwards of 70 percent. And that's and and that the country needs the wealthiest people uh, today to start paying their fair share in taxes. How would the AOC tax plan work? First off, Ocasio-Cortez hasn't released a tax plan or even much a detailed proposal. I will interject because she's uh, been in office for like two fucking days. There is no bill. And even if there was one featuring a 70% tax rate on the rich, it is hard to imagine it uh, passing into law. Yeah. For now, all we have are Ocasio-Cortez's comments on 60 Minutes, which have sparked fire pro and con on social media and cable news. In response to Anderson Cooper's question about what kinds of new tax rate she has in mind to cover the costs of the Green New Deal programs, Ocasio-Cortez said, You look at our tax rates back in the 60s, and when you have a progressive tax rate system, your tax rate, you know, let's say from 0 to $75,000, maybe 10% or 15%, etc. But once you get to, like, the tippy tops on your 10 millionth dollar, sometimes you see tax rates as high as 60 or 70%. That doesn't mean all $10 million are taxed at an extremely high rate. But it means that as you climb up the ladder, you should be contributing more. I completely understand that argument. $10 million is enough to live comfortably on. Anything over and above that allows you to live even more comfortably. I would just like to make a note that this interview was done a couple of months ago and then, of course, is edited um, to give the story that is going to be the most provocative in whatever format that takes. That's the fucking shame of TV news and that kind of format, not being able to just speak directly to the people when you have to have a filter like Anderson Cooper. So that doesn't mean that all 10 million... Okay, yeah. So in the interview, um, AOC also said people are going to have to start paying their fair share in taxes, but she doesn't state exactly who should pay more in taxes to specify or specify what income levels would face higher tax rates. Again, there is no real plan. All she said is that decades ago, tax rates on the ultra-rich were much higher than they are now. And yes, according to data from the Tax Foundation, during the 1960s and the 1970s, and even into the early 1980s, Reagan, the marginal tax rate in the U.S. was often 70% on the highest levels of household income, which back then was earnings in excess of around $200,000. Paula Krugman the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist pointed out that these high tax rates, though astronomical compared to today's levels, were routinely applied to the highest earnings of the wealthy in the United States for 35 years after World War II, including the most successful period of economic growth in our history. Who would pay higher taxes and AOC's ideas somehow came to reality? Data cited by the Washington Post indicates that as of 2016, only 16,000 tax filers, or one half of a percent of U.S. households, had income over $10 million. So if a 70% tax rate was applied to the households with income over $10 million, as AOC seems to be suggesting, 
it might affect less than 1% of all households. As Krugman put it, the main reason to consider a significantly higher marginal tax rate like the one suggested by AOC is that America did just fine economically during the decades when such tax rates were in effect, and that a policy that makes the rich a bit poorer will affect only a handful of people and will barely affect their life satisfaction. What is a marginal tax rate? So glad you asked. Not all of an individual's income is taxed at the same rate. In the U.S., households pay lower tax rates on income in the lowest brackets and pay increasingly higher tax rates on income in higher brackets. This is a marginal tax rate defined um, by Investopedia, da 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 The tax rate incurred on each additional dollar of income, essentially. Right now, there are seven federal income tax rates. Regardless of what tax bracket you're in at the high end, most single filers have a 10% tax rate on the first $9,525 they earn, after adjustments and deductions, then a 12% tax rate on income between $9,526 and $38,700, all the way up to a 37% tax rate for income of $500,000 and $1 or more. And that's, of course, before you have the ability to pay accountants to significantly change that. And that's the federal tax rate. Also, I would like to say, as a small business owner, it would be way easier for me to get on board with being fiscally conservative. It would make me keep more of my own money. Shockingly, that would feel immoral. So the new tax rates envisioned by AOC would not mean that households earning over $10 million would pay 70% in taxes on all that income. Instead, they'd pay the higher rates only on income over that threshold. So yeah, you keep your $10 million, and then after that, you're taxed really high. Like I said, you can't live a life comfortably off of $10 million a year. Fucking change your life, okay? Thank you. Ocasio-Cortez has said that critics have been overlooking that the U.S. has a marginal tax rate system in order to mischaracterize her call for higher taxes on the rich. How much money could be raised with a 70% tax on the rich? There are so many unknowns that it's difficult to predict how the a tax proposal on the rich um, would generate um, any discernible income. Um And really, it's not shocking considering she's had the job a couple of days, like I said. Tax experts consulted by the Washington Post say that a 70% um, tax on income over $10 million could theoretically bring in an additional $72 billion per year in taxes or $720 billion over a decade. That would be nearly enough to cover Bernie Sanders' plan to provide tuition-free college, estimated at a cost of $800 billion, for instance. Pretty sure we spent $500 billion at least every year on defense, and we've spent $3 trillion in Afghanistan and Iraq fighting wars that ended a decade and a half ago. Fact check me, Monica Padman. Anyway. However, the real number is probably smaller than that because wealthy Americans would probably find ways around paying this much higher tax, the Post notes, of course, Mitt Romney. 
Conservatives also argue that taxing the rich at extremely high rates is simply unfair and bad for the economy, and that taxes would have to be raised across all income levels if America truly wanted to enact a Green New Deal. If that's what AOC and others in the Democratic Party want, it needs to stop talking stupidly about the rich and begin making the case for the considerably higher middle-class taxes that will be needed to pay for the considerably higher social spending it covets. National Review Online editor Charles C.W. Cook wrote today, and such a plan would be probably politically suicidal. Now, from motherfucking Fox News published today, Tuesday, the 8th, entitled Ocasio-Cortez Attacks Fact-Checkers for False Equivalency Bias. As always, I will link to this in the show notes. How could I do the subject of sexism in politics justice if I didn't quote directly from Fox News, which is the lifeblood of all of Trump's policies, essentially? So there was some music in the background that popped up as I'm going to read this article. Sorry about that. So quoting directly from Fox News, written today, Tommy Lauren is on the banner, a fucking course. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, published 11 hours ago by Brooke Singman. Ocasio-Cortez attacks fact-checkers for false equivalency bias. Representative AOC lashed out at fact-checkers just days after taking office, accusing them of false equivalency and bias toward her in the columns examining her statements. Ocasio-Cortez, Democrat out of New York, has been called out by fact-checkers at a steady clip since her upset primary win last year over then-Representative Joe Crowley. She's apparently had enough. On Monday, she took aim at PolitiFact and the Washington Post fact-checking unit for supposedly singling her out. Facts are facts, America. We should care about getting things right. Yet standards of who gets fact-checked, how often, and why are unclear, Ocasio-Cortez tweeted Monday. This is where false equivalency plus bias creeps in, allowing climate deniers to be put on par with scientists, for example. Her argument was not so much that the columns were wrong, but that they should be scrutinizing the Trump White House more. Ocasio-Cortez complained that PolitiFact fact-checked her the same amount of times as the White House press secretary, Sarah Sanders. When did we stop calling her Sarah Huckabee Sanders? I need to get um, an answer on that. Ocasio-Cortez dance video spurs false claims of conservative outrage. For example, it looks like PolitiFact has fact-checked Sarah Huckabee Sanders and myself the same amount of times. Six, she said. She's been serving for two years. I've served four days. Why is she fact-checked so little? Is she adhering to some standard we don't know about? She added, another question for PolitiFact. Some officials' statements, example, Andrew Cuomo, get rated true frequently. I say true things all the time. I'd hope most do. When does PolitiFact choose to rate true statements? Is there a guide? I'd be happy to repost it if there is. A reporter for the Washington Post, which regularly publishes a fact-check column assigning 
Pinocchio's based on the level of falsehood and statements made hit back noting there is a way to avoid being fact-checked and stressing they scrutinize the Trump administration plenty. Ocasio-Cortez floats the 70% tax on the rich. No one likes to be fact-checked. There's a simple way to avoid it, and there's a big difference between the colossal amount of time we spend fact-checking Trump, 7,645 false misleading claims and counting, and two fact-checks of AOC, post-reporter Sal Rizzo tweeted. Ocasio-Cortez then seemed to back down. Fact-checking is critically important. It's not always fun, but that's okay. It pushes me to be better. It is important that if fact-checkers are referees, everyone knows the rules, and that those rules be as clear and as fair as possible for all that play, she said. Thank you for the work that you do. Ocasio-Cortez is in an interview Sunday on CBS News 60 Minutes, was asked about the criticism over factual errors and argued it's more important to be morally right. I think that there's a lot of people more concerned about being precisely factually and uh, cinematically correct than being morally right, Ocasio-Cortez said. But she said it's still important to be factually correct, and she owns up when she says something clumsy. But it's not the same thing as the president lying about immigrants. It's not the same, same thing at all, she said. For the next couple years, we'll watch AOC explain herself via social media and we'll get an entirely different version of her through the patriarchal lens of the media. Having such access and the instant ability to hop on a social media platform and make her positions known is going to unfilter her political message. I'm really excited to watch others use these platforms to engage directly with us citizens. We're smart. We don't need a handful of news companies distilling information for us and packing it in a way that benefits the news organizations. This isn't a brave new world. We can figure it out. Thanks, Ann Coulter. You're really responsible for the government shutdown. So anyway, try to look beyond the sexism. Don't get distracted. It's like the fucked up thing in Bird Box. Just don't take your blindfold off. Stick with the course and we'll get there. Eventually. So, from blatant political sexism to an even more multifaceted problem involving murder, sexual trafficking the criminal justice system, lack of differentiation between victims and predators. You know where I'm going. I mentioned her on a previous pod, so I'm fucking thrilled to update you. Even though I'm sure your woke asses know all about this, let's fucking hooray together for Santonio Brown. This is from CNN yesterday, January 7th. Brown 30 will be released on parole supervision on August 7th after serving 15 years in prison, Republican Governor Bill Haslam's office said in a statement. This decision comes after careful consideration of what is a tragic and complex case, Haslam said. Brown committed, by her own admission, a horrific crime at the age of 16, yet imposing a life sentence on a juvenile that would require her to serve at least 51 years before even being eligible for parole consideration is too harsh, especially in light of the extraordinary steps Ms. Brown has taken to rebuild her life. 
transformation should be accompanied by hope. Brown's case drew the attention of several high-profile advocates, including a U.S. congressman, several Tennessee lawmakers, and a number of A-list celebrities. Comedian Amy Schumer, reality star Kim Kardashian West, and actress Ashley Judd were among those who called for Brown's clemency. In 2004, Brown killed Johnny Mitchell Allen, who Brown said had solicited her for sex and taken her back to his house. Prosecutors at the time said Brown shot Allen in the head while he was sleeping, stole money and guns, took his truck, and fled the scene. They argued the killing wasn't motivated by self-defense, but robbery. Brown said she was scared for her life by Allen's behavior and took money for fear of returning empty-handed to her pimp, nicknamed Cutthroat. A juvenile court found Brown competent to be tried as an adult. She was convicted of murder and robbery and sentenced to life in prison. Though more than a decade had passed since her trial, the harsh punishment for a teenage victim of sex trafficking sparked outrage around the U.S., particularly after celebrities Rihanna and Kardashian West came to her defense on social media in 2017. Since Brown's conviction, juvenile sentencing guidelines in Tennessee have been amended. If Brown were tried today, legal experts say she would not have been tried in the same way, said CNN affiliate WZTV anchor Stacy Case, who had been investigating reports of sex trafficking in Tennessee when she came across Brown's story. Our courts today would view her as a child sex slave. She would be viewed as a victim. In fact, it was Brown's trial that inspired a documentary that eventually helped to alter the way Tennessee deals with sex trafficking victims, particularly those that are juveniles. If you look at Sintonia's original transcripts, they are peppered with the phrase teen prostitute, says Derry Smith, founder and CEO of nonprofit End Slavery Tennessee. Well, we know today there's no such thing as a teen prostitute because This teen may think that she decided this was her idea to be raped multiple times a day and give money to someone else. It's pretty clear there's an adult behind that's manipulating and exploiting her. In the 2011 documentary, Me Facing Life, Brown's story describes, so she describes being forced into prostitution at a young age, sex trafficked and raped repeatedly. The first time, uh, she goes on to say, the first time he did something to me um, is when he choked me and I passed out, Brown recounts. Um, of her alleged pimp in the documentary. I made him money. He wasn't going to let me go nowhere. He told me he'd kill me. Sintonia Brown um, has appeared in um, a couple of, anyway, blah, blah, blah. The documentary by uh, Daniel H. Burnham Productions, blah, 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 also revealed new evidence that suggests Brown suffered from fetal alcohol syndrome, which can cause brain damage, evidence that the injury which convicted her in 2004 never saw. Her mother also admitted to drinking heavily while pregnant, according to court records from a 2014 appeal. Then as a teenager, she did have a nice adoptive family, Case said. But because of her experiences, she veered and ended up on the wrong side of the law and ended up being sex trafficked. If she had grown up differently, if she had had other opportunities, it may have ended up that way. Yeah, she was fucking susceptible and she became a victim of sex trafficking. 
A second installment of the documentary is scheduled for release this year. She's fighting for a second chance. Since her sentencing, Brown has spent all of her adulthood in prison, but her advocates say she has worked to transform herself during her time behind bars. She is light years... she is light years today as a woman different from the traumatized 16-year-old that she was, Smith says. She's mentoring troubled youth, working on her college degree. She is planning a nonprofit so that she can help other young people. Brown received her associate's degree from Lipscomb University in 2015 and, according to Smith, has been working toward her bachelor's degree while in prison. She's also collaborating with Tennessee's juvenile justice system to help counsel young people at risk, and her supporters say she's been a model inmate during her incarceration. I learned that my life was and is not over, Brown said over the phone in a clip titled Prison Reflections from the Documentary Filmmakers. I can create opportunities where I can actually help people. I wanted to share this updated story as I know I've heard about it on other pods. I'll have to save my breakdown of all the patriarchal societal structures that allowed her to be sentenced in the first place and held for 15 years. Clearly, society has made some leaps in understanding trafficking, but really Amy Schumer and Ashley Judd and Kim Kardashian and the like brought attention. Brown is a tragedy. There are a million others as statistics. Fucking Stalin, right? I always question myself on that. It has to be Stalin. I'm pretty sure it is. One of these days, I'm going to look it up. So I have a podcast recommendation to pair nicely with the further understanding of the Brown case situation um, and in general sex trafficking um, and how we really need to see even adults that are in sex trafficking as victims and not as people that need to be punished. Um, The podcast is called I Survivor. The episode is titled Trafficked, Recovered, and Redeemed. It was released on September 11th, 2018. It should not be missed in its entirety. I don't want to give any spoilers. Just check out the episode, specifically the Jasmine segment, as that is um, really closely related to the experience of Brown. So um, I'll throw a link up um, on Twitter for that as well. Probably just like a screenshot of the podcast. As always, thank you for the feedback, for telling your friends, and of course, for subscribing, rating, and reviewing the pod so I can keep it going. Thanks for listening.